Amen. Thanks, guys. So the past, past few weeks, we've been walking through 1 Samuel. So if this is your first week or you've only been here a few weeks, we preach through books of the Bible. So it'll seem maybe to some of you that we're going through a ton of scripture, but that's what we like to do. We just like to preach right through a book of the Bible. We preached through Nehemiah and John last year, and then we jumped into 1 Samuel this year. We usually go Old Testament, New Testament, and rotate back and forth between the old and the new. Um, so we've been in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is right in the middle of the Old Testament. Maybe not in number of books, but as far as just the life of the Israelites, 1 Samuel tends to be right in the middle. And it's an important book because the nation of Israel is they're changing from what we would call a theocracy. And a theocracy is where they're being ruled by God through judges. So they're changing from a theocracy to a monarchy. And a monarchy being where they're going to be ruled by kings. And the book begins, if you recall, as we've been going through the book, it starts with there's a, a priest in power named Eli, and then a woman named Hannah. Hannah has a child. She prays for a child. She has a child. She brings that child and gives that child Samuel to the temple. And we read through that first, first Samuel 1, chapter 2. And then as you go through, Samuel grows up and he takes, really, he's a priest and a judge. Kind of fills both roles, but he will be the last of the judges in Israel. And then you'll have the transition, which we're going to go through today, to the king. Um, and the, the transition happens, interestingly, because the nation of Israel is looking around them at the other nations. They do what we often do. You look around you and say, ooh, I want that, and I want that, and that looks like a little more security to me. And so that's, that's what they're doing. They say, look, all the nations around us have a king. We have this unseen God. We don't have a military. We don't have a royal family. There's really, we don't feel like we're protected. God waits till the last minute, and at the last minute, when we're being attacked, he raises up a judge, think like Samson, he raises up a judge, and that judge, you know, takes out God's vengeance on whoever and saves the Israelites in most cases, but as the Israelites, we don't like that. That's too much dependence on God. That's too much faith, all right? That's a little nerve-wracking. That's scary. I'd rather have a king in place that I can look to, that I know has a military, that knows is going to protect me. And that's, that's generally the mindset that they have. So as will often be the case, God gives them the desires of their heart. And God will often give you, whether it's the best thing for you or not, in a lot of cases, he will give you the desires of your heart. You're begging and begging and begging and crying out and crying out, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. And he'll, that's what he does for the Israelites. He goes, okay, I'm going to give you a king. And that, they get a king and the man's name is Saul. Okay, he's the first king of Israel. He's handsome, he's wealthy, and he's tall. I don't know why those things are kind of outlined, but that's, that's who Saul is. Handsome, wealthy, and tall. The, the, the text says he's literally a head above all the other people. He's head and shoulders above the rest of the people. And when we first meet him, he has no idea he's about to be king of Israel. No idea. He's walking around Israel looking for lost donkeys. That's literally what he's doing. He's going around Israel trying to find lost donkeys. And eventually, he and his servant, they can't find them. Multiple days have gone by, probably third day, fourth day, they can't find these donkeys. And so his servant says, hey, I've heard of a seer in the land. Let's go see the seer. And seer is kind of the name that they... The prophets were called originally, and that's what a lot of people, a lot of different 
religions have seers, if you will, but that's what they referred to them as. So they went to see the seer, because maybe the seer can help us out and find our donkeys. So they go see the prophet named Samuel. And it says in 1 Samuel 9, 15 and 16, it says, Now the day before Samuel came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. So it's, it's really always interesting to me to see how God is working in two different lives to accomplish the same purpose. So he says, I mean, Saul's just going around looking for donkeys. And God goes to Samuel and says, Samuel, about this time tomorrow, a guy is going to come to you and he's going to be looking for this, but he's the one that I want you to make prince over all of Israel. Um, the other thing you need to keep in mind is he used the word prince. He didn't say king. He said prince. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. Because in an earthly sense, Saul was king. Okay? Earthly sense, he had the title of king. But in a spiritual sense, he was a prince. In a spiritual se- sense, he was the under-shepherd to the true king. The true king being God... He was going to serve as an under-shepherd. So the next day, Saul and his servants show up, just as God said they would. They show up to Samuel, and they said, and immediately when they show up, they're ushered into a special dinner. We read that. Jake talked about that last week. They're ushered into a special dinner, and they're they're seated at the, the head seat, the seat of honor. And you can imagine they're probably a little confused. Like, look, I'm just looking for donkeys. Like, I know I'm tall and handsome and wealthy, but I don't, I don't really need to be the, the, the seat of honor here. I'm just, I'm looking for some donkeys. But they stay, they stay the night, and the next morning, as they're going back home, because Samuel says, you're going to find your donkeys. So the next day, they go to leave, and Samuel goes up to Saul and says, send your servant ahead. I got something I got to talk to you about. So he sends his servant ahead, and Samuel and Saul have this little conversation. You'll see it in 1 Samuel 10. It says, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. And kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince, there's that word again, over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So put yourself in Saul's shoes. You're a farmer. You're looking for donkeys. And all of a sudden, you just got told you're going to be king of Israel. It's a pretty big turn of events. Would you agree? That would be like you and I just being Joe Schmoes that we are, and all of a sudden we're president of the United States. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty big turn of events. And so to, to help him understand and help him believe, God gives him three signs. Or same, gives, God gives him through Samuel three signs. He goes, tomorrow when you leave, or today when you leave, you're going to go by Rachel's tomb, and there's going to be two men there that are going to tell you about your donkeys. All right? A little later, you're going to meet three men, that are coming down from offering a sacrifice and they're going to give you bread, they're going to give you wine. And finally, you're going to meet a group of prophets. Remember the guys with the tambourines and the lyres and all this stuff that we talked about last week? They're going to come down the mountain and they're going to be prophesying. And you're going to prophesy with them. So Samuel and his servant, I assume, leave. And all of these things happen just as Samuel said they would happen. And we see in verse 7, or excuse me, verse 6, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon you, or then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. This is Samuel telling them what's going to happen. So then in verse 10, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. This is how the Holy Spirit interacts with people in the Old Testament. 
And it's very important for us to understand that. It's how he interacts with people. It was a temporary indwelling of people for a particular task or a specific purpose. In Saul's case, he's being filled with the Spirit of God to fulfill his kingly responsibilities. You'll see the Spirit come upon him. Later, the Spirit will leave him. The Spirit will go on David. But right now, the Spirit has come upon him. And just stop right there and let's think about this. Obviously, as believers, post-cross, when, this, when we are saved and we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives indefinitely. The Holy Spirit is always with us. Can you, can you fathom what it must have been like for Old Testament people to just have that temporary indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Like it would just be, it would be mind-blowing to only have that Spirit for a little bit and then it's, you know, in, in Psalm 51 when David has the affair with Bathsheba, he says, take not your Spirit from me. Like this is, it's such a, it's such a powerful thing and, you know, to, to see what that's like in Saul's life when the Spirit is on him is totally different. The way he acts is different. The desires, at least in those moments, are totally different. And the people around him in verse 11, they're like, who is this guy? All right, verse 11. And when all the people, or when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Don't you love verse 11? His friends see him and are like, what in the world is happening? Like, who, who is this guy? What has come over this guy? The people who knew him previously were like, what just happened? All right, I remember when I first started walking with Jesus, my life changed quite a bit. For some of you, maybe you were born in the church and just kind of grew up and you always, you know, kind of did the right thing. And some, so maybe your friends around you didn't notice this massive change. But for me, I didn't always do the right thing. So... There was, a, there was quite a bit of change. You know, pre-Jesus, I was into a lot of nonsense. And post-Jesus, I felt like some of that nonsense didn't really have a place in my life anymore. Personal convictions didn't really have a place in my life. So for those around me, looking in on my life, when my friends would run into me, they would be like, what happened to you? Like, what changed? Why are you different? I'll never forget, I ran into an old friend, and the first thing out of this, probably two years into my walk with Christ, I run into an old friend at dinner, and he comes up to me, and he, the first thing he said, looks at me, he goes, and he kind of gives me that look where he looks to the side, and he goes, so, this is exact words, word on the street, I guess we used to be on the street, but word on the street is that you found Jesus and became a preacher. And this was way before I ever even dreamed I would be standing up preaching to anybody. So this was, you know, that, I was not a preacher at the time, but those were, those were his words. And it was noticeable to the people around me. And here's the thing I want you to understand. It wasn't necessarily that I had done anything to change. I wasn't the one doing the work. There was discipline involved, and I was reading the word and praying. And so there were spiritual disciplines involved in my growth, but the Holy Spirit was the one doing the work. The Holy Spirit of God came into my life and he was changing me and conforming me to the image of God. And that's exactly what's happening to Saul. The Spirit comes on him. Woo, he's different. And even his uncle's a little perplexed. Verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said to seek the donkeys. 
And when we saw, and when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. Like, I need to understand this. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So his uncle comes up and says, tell me what's going on. He shares the little bit about the donkeys being found. He kind of omits the part about him becoming king of Israel. I, I don't really know why, but, you know, leaves out that part, leaves out the essential oils being dumped on his head, just kind of like forgets all that stuff. Um, and I really don't know why he left it out. The text doesn't tell us why. But in verse 17, everybody's about ready to find out. So when you go to verse 17, all of Israel is going to find out. So let me, I'm going to step back for just a second and tell you, kind of bring you up to speed on where we are. The people demanded a king. Israel said, we're tired of the judges. We're tired of last minute rescues. We're tired of you raising up somebody. We want a permanent king. God honored their request, gave him a king. Saul is anointed privately when he was just he and Samuel. They sent the servant on ahead. Just he and Samuel, he's anointed privately, but nobody else knows what has happened. Nobody else knows this has taken place. So they're all about to gather at Mizpah, as you'll see in verse 17, and picture what's about to happen as like an inauguration, presidential inauguration, just for our own American mindset. That's what's about to happen. All right, so the reason I love this is because What God's going to do is there's this conversation going on through Samuel where God's going to say, here's your king, but I'm your deliverer. I'm the one that delivers you. I'm the one that saves you. Verse 17, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I, don't don't miss that, that little I right there. It's the Lord. I brought you up brought up Israel out of Egypt. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. And notice the change in language that's about to happen. It's like this, this parenting technique. This is what you say you want to do. I'm going to go ahead and let you do it, even though I know how this is going to end. I know when you walk down this path, it's going to end badly for you. But as my kid, you have asked me, you have asked me, you have asked me, you have asked me, and I'm just, go do it. But I'm going to warn you ahead of time what it's going to look like. Verse 19, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of Matrites was taken by Lot. Now, stop right here. This casting of lots, when I read it, it sounds a little weird. Saul's, we already know Saul's going to be king. Saul already knows Saul's going to be king. God has chosen Saul to be king. Everybody gathers together, and now they're casting lots to see who's going to be king. Okay, and so it may seem a little weird, but here's what God knows. God knows the people of Israel all too well. He knows how they operate. When things go sideways down the road, they're going to look for somebody to blame. God, you're the one that gave us this king. There was not due process of casting lots. You're the one that gave us this king. Things have gone sideways now and they will shake their fists at God because there's no way that they could be held responsible for their actions. Would you agree? I mean, there's no way. There's no way that anybody should be held responsible for their actions. And that's essentially what they're doing. And God said, if he just gives them the king and says, this is going to be your king, 
which is really happening, but it's behind the scenes. If he just says, this is going to be your king, they're going to look for somebody to blame. So instead, they go through this common ancient practice of casting lots. So everybody gets together, they cast lots, and it falls to Benjamin. Then they cast lots, and it falls to this clan. Then it casts lots, and it falls to this family, and eventually it gets all the way down to Saul, verse 21. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Dude's still paranoid about becoming the king of Israel. So one of the things I love about the way this has all been written is that in the previous chapters, they are doing nothing but finding and finding and finding and finding and finding and everything is falling into line. And then when they finally get to the king, he can't be found. Okay, and you can read through this. Saul and his servant, what do they do? They find a quarter. The servant finds a quarter to pay Samuel so they can go see the seer. Then when they're coming into town, they find these women at the well who say, oh, there's where you're going to find Samuel. Okay, then they find the seer, Samuel, who tells them exactly what to do. Then when he leaves, he tells them three things they need to find when they leave. So they leave and they find the men by Rachel's tomb who tell them where to find the donkeys. All right, then they find three men by the oak of Tabor who's going to give them bread and wine. Then they find three prophets coming down the hill with the tambourine, the lyre. Remember that when they had all the musical instruments? So they're, I mean, everything for Saul in the last three to five days has, he's found this, he's found this. Everything has fallen exactly into line. But now, in the moment of truth, he can't be found. And the author's trying to like, I think author's just trying to show you the irony. Everything has fallen into line and now he can't be found. Now again, in fairness to him, he was a farmer. He may have been tall and handsome and wealthy, but he was a farmer. And now he's king of Israel. I would be hiding too, probably. I mean, it's, 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 it's very understandable. I'm sure it's a little overwhelming. So the people, verse 22, they're like, is this really the king? Is this really the king that you've given us? Verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, I mean, just straight sells him out. It's pretty funny. He goes, behold, he's hidden himself in the baggage. So they, they're trying to figure out where he is. God says he's in the baggage. So they go over to whatever this baggage is. Camel, I, I don't know what it is, but whatever this baggage is, they go. So they ran over and they took him from there. Verse 23. And where he stood, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from the shoulders upward. When he, so they get him out of the camel sacks, whatever it is, pull him out. Get up here. You know, you're our new king. So he stands up and it says, the first thing they say, he's a head taller than the rest of the people. And it's such an odd thing to say. We've read it so many times, it seems totally natural to, to point that out. But if you step back and think about it, it's a pretty odd thing to say. But the ancient world was obsessed with height and might and strength. And it was this, you know, have you ever been around tall people? It's rhetorical, but I see smiles, so maybe you have. Um, you may not want to admit it, but there's statistics to prove it. There is something reassuring about being led by somebody who is tall. It's just a fact. I don't care if you like it or not. It's a fact just based on, based on stats. You know, I work downtown. I work downtown Tampa. And when I go from my parking garage to the building I work in, I have to, you know, I want to get as much AC as possible. So I cut through as many hotels and buildings and stuff. I mean, you try walking downtown in the summertime. It's hot in a suit. You know, so you ever wonder why I don't wear a suit on Sundays? It's because I wear one Monday through Fridays. Um, so when you cut through, you cut through the hotels, and during football season, 
a lot of times the visiting teams will stay at this Hilton, which is right downtown. And so, you know, if they're playing the Cowboys, whoever they're playing, so occasionally they'll come in flying on a Thursday or they'll fly in on a Friday. And so you'll see some of these football players during college football season when they have the Outback Bowl or when the national championship was here a few years ago, they'll do, you know, the same thing. So that, for the Outback Bowl, they're here for the whole week. They have, like, all these festivities and they play golf and eat at Outback a lot and all this kind of stuff. So they're, so I'm walking through the hotel Auburn was in town. Auburn was playing somebody from the Big Ten because it's always SEC Big Ten. So Auburn was playing somebody from the Big Ten. And I'll never forget walking you know, up the landing, walking over to my parking garage, and there's all these nameplates on these rooms, quarterbacks, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, wide receivers, you know, that kind of thing. And so as I'm walking past the offensive lineman door, the door opens and out walks Auburn's offensive lineman. And these are 18, 19, and 20-year-olds and they are beasts. I mean, these are Alabama corn-fed. I mean, they are literally taller than anybody from the shoulders upward. And I'm 6'3", and it's like I'm Tom Cruise walking through the middle of these, walking through the middle of these guys, all right? Tom Cruise is 5'6", by the way. Um, and if you, did you know he was 5'6"? I mean, that's really not the point, but um, Pat says he's glad. Um, I don't know how to take that, Pat. Um, but I just proved my point because when I said he was 5'6", those of you who knew laughed and those of you who didn't know had always pictured him being 6'5 in your head. You were like, Tom Cruise is 5'6"? Really? Um, but there's, there is something comforting about being led by people who are tall. Presidents have always been tall. No matter what era they're in, they tend to be taller than the average person in their, in their time frame. All right, 11 of the last 12 presidents have been over 5 feet 10. Eight of the last 12 have been over 6 feet. That's just the way it is. When you look at CEOs, you look at governors, men or women, they tend to be tall individuals. And ancient worlds were obsessed with height. All right, we're not really going into battle so having people who are giants and can fight, that's really not as important to us in today's society because we're not getting attacked every day we walk outside. So having a bunch of big people around us, maybe not as relevant. But the ancient world was obsessed with height. So it's no surprise. Here's, here's what I want you to understand. When the people of Israel want a king, the Lord gives them their king and gives them someone who at least on the outside meets what they're looking for. The Lord says, I'm going to give you somebody who you want. And that's why we see the repetition of Saul's height over and over and over. Somebody by their standards, because God knows their standards, knows what they're looking for. Somebody who he says, this is what you want. This is who I'm going to give you. And so he gives them somebody who's tall. And what's interesting is when we see King David announced and introduced by, in 1 Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 16, he's described very differently. Every time we hear Saul, it's, he was a head taller than everybody else. When you hear David, he's tending sheep, he's young, and he's playing the harp. That's a very different picture in your head if you're seeing who David is. All right, The first time we see David in battle, he's described as young and weak. And what's he doing? He's fighting a giant. He's fighting Goliath. The first time you meet David in battle, he's fighting Goliath. Somebody who had no business beating. Somebody who had no business overpowering because God's trying to show you the contrast. What you're looking for and what I can do through anybody I want to do it through. 
I don't care if they're tall. I don't care if they're mighty. I don't care if they're wealthy. I don't care what they are. I'm going to give you a king that measures up to your standards. But a little while later, I'm going to give you a king that measures up to my standards. Someone who is after my own heart. All right, listen to what Lord says to Samuel. So the end of, David, the end of Saul's reign, for Samuel 16, they're going to look for the new king. And Samuel's like, where is he at? Let me anoint him, whoever he is. So 1 Samuel 16, he says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. Go get your essential oils and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I, look at the language, I have provided for myself a king who is among his sons. The next king, the next king of Israel is going to be a man that pleases the Lord. Not a man who's good in the eyes of the people. He will be a man after my own heart. So Samuel goes, finds Jesse, and what do they do? They line up all the boys in the house. All the young men of Jesse. Remember that? They line them all up, the oldest to the youngest. Samuel walks in, and Samuel lays eyes on the very first guy, his first son, and he goes, oh. Samuel's like, look at this dude. This is clearly who, this is Samuel, a prophet. And he looks and says, this is clearly the guy who's going to be the next king of Israel. Verse 6, when they came, he looked at Samuel. Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see the contrast? And we'll dive more into this when we actually get further along in 1 Samuel and we start talking about David. But Saul, that's what the people want. David is going to be a king that's after the Lord's heart. And we're going to see that time and time again. All right, for the rest of your life, you will be tempted to look to people and things around you to provide you security, to sustain you. Take your eyes off the Lord and look around you. We want a king. I want a king. Right now that I got a king, I want a tall king. I want a wealthy king. I want a king who can build up a military. God's like, I know what's best. All right, maybe if we just had a better president. Maybe if so-and-so was president, we'd be, it'd be a better place. I've heard that for the last six presidents. Right? If only so-and-so was in office. You know, if only Grady Judd was our sheriff from Polk County. If only he was our sheriff, Tampa would be a much safer place to be. Right? You're, we're looking to people and things to sustain us. If we're not careful, we look to jobs to fulfill us. We look for our vacations to give us pleasure. We look for our spouses to give us security. We look to our kids to give us joy. We look to our church to give us fellowship. And we look to the government to give us peace. And the list of things we look to go on and on and on. And while all those things are wonderful and all those things serve a great purpose, they will never fulfill your heart like Jesus. Ever. And that is the temptation as a human, as a fallen human being, is to look around. I want a king. I want that. I want a better job. I want a safer place to live. I want this. I want this. And God says, look to me. Please stop looking at the outward appearance of the things around you and look at me. All right, so even though Saul's hiding, you know, and if I was the nation of Israel and my first king is hiding, I'd be like, what's going on here? Like, is this really the king? And that's exactly what they do. Verse 23. And when he stood up, 
He's hiding. Verse 23. And when he stood up among... So they go find him. They pull him out. When he stood up among the people... Here we go again. He was taller than all the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him. Probably sarcastically saying this as he climbs out of the camel bags and the blankets. You know, there is none like him among all the people as he's, you know, coming up to stand in front of the people. And they all see how tall he is and they say, Long live the king. Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, probably Deuteronomy 17, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So Saul leaves, kind of the, the, the ordination ceremony's done. Saul leaves, he goes back home to Gibeah, and don't miss the last part of that. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God has touched. It didn't say these men went on their own volition. It said God was moving in people's hearts to go with him. And I think it's a wonderful picture of how God works in the church. And not only how he works in the church, but how he works in this church. Specifically. You know, a group of people coming together, coming together to have a new fellowship for a variety of reasons, but coming together to form a new fellowship. And what I have seen over the last two years is God touch people's hearts and say, I want to go join that fellowship. I want to go join that fellowship. Like, I want to be a part of that fellowship. I mean, every time I open my eyes, there's new people that God has graciously brought us. We don't deserve these people. When I look around, I'm like, oh man, like, I never in a million years would have thought that our church family would be made up of so many giftings and so many, you know, the Lord just using so many people in so many different ways. And that's, that's what we want. We're not, we're not here for numbers. We're here to be used by God. We're here to hopefully, you use your gifts both inside the church and outside the church. And God has continually gone in people's hearts and said, come with them. Come with them. And you've obeyed. We're not that fancy. We, we really don't have that much to offer, and you've obeyed. I think it's a wonderful, a wonderful picture of the church. But then on the other side, verse 27, but some worthless fellows, we've had some people leave the church, no, I'm just kidding, um, but some, to- totally kidding, um, but some worthless fellows said, now I don't blame these guys because Saul just crawled out of the camel bags, says some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he, talking about Saul, held his peace. So even with all the things that have just happened, all the lots have been cast, all the begging for a king, God gives him a king, the king shows up, he's tall. You know, all this stuff that's happened, there's still people who doubt. Is this really the king? And if you fast forward through the history of Israel, all the way up to the time of Christ, there's still going to be people doubting the king. There's no way he's the Messiah. We're expecting somebody very different. There's no way he's going to be the one that's going to deliver us. No way that he's going to be the one that's going to save us. Like we, we, no. Jesus isn't, that's not, no. We're expecting a very different king. And there were haters in that day and there were haters in that, in Jesus' day. All right, so Saul goes home, verse 11, or chapter 11. We're going to fly through chapter 11. Chapter 11. Saul goes home. He begins, you know, probably still in denial a little bit, but he goes home and he starts plowing with his oxen and something happens and this guy named Nahash, who's king of the Ammonites, comes into town. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, 
Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. Sounds like a really pleasant guy, doesn't he? Um, I will gouge out all your right eyes and bring disgrace on Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. And when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. So Nahash is king of the Ammonites. And if the whole right eye thing didn't make you a little wary of him, the fact that his name means snake should make you a little more wary of him. All right, that's what his name means. Nahash means snake. So the snake tells the Israelites, I'm going to gouge out all your right eyes. And in warfare in those days, I'm not saying this would have been a common practice, but you would have held your shield. I'm really good at holding a shield, so I have to do it all the time. But if you, you hold your shield right here, and it covers your left eye because you still need to be able to see. So a lot of times they would cover their left eye with the shield, especially if they were right-handed, and they would... You know, whatever they were going to throw, a javelin, a hatchet, a sp- whatever it is, would come out of the, the right hand because they were right-handed. So by telling someone you were going to gouge out all of their right eyes, you were essentially saying, I still want you to be able to farm. I want you still to be able to be to my land. I want you to pay taxes. I want you to pay taxes, but you're never going to be in warfare again. You're not going to be able to fight in battle. You're going to be useless when it comes to defending yourself. So all your right eyes are gone. So that's, that's essentially what he's telling them. And they're, they're panicked. Verse 5. Now, behold, Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people? That they are weeping. So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now, if you read through the book of Judges, like I said, there's a lot of similar language. Spirit of God comes on someone. You think of Samson. Spirit of God often came on Samson, and he went and pounded the Philistines. You remember all those examples where he came on and boom, went and cut down so many. That's what's happening here. God is empowering Saul to lead the Israelites. Verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So they go back to Nahash and they're like, oh, tomorrow, you know, we'll give ourselves up to you tomorrow at this time. So I don't know if they're trying to lure him in or have Nahash put his guard down, but either way, they're like, Tomorrow we'll give ourselves to you. Verse 11. The next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the, in the camp in the morning watch, which would probably have been around 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. would have been dark. And they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were together. Then the people said to Samuel, What is it, what is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. So they go into battle. Saul divides them into three companies. They go and they annihilate Nahash. They come back. Everybody's cheering. Everybody's like, wow, Saul, he's awesome. Um, Now, who are those haters in the last chapter? Who are those people that said, who is this man? How can he save us? Remember, Remember those people that said, how can this man save us? That's what they're asking for. Who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. Let's kill them. 
Verse 13, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation. One of the few times you're going to see Saul rightly acknowledge the Lord. Put himself in a humble position and acknowledge that God had worked through him and that God was the true deliverer. We're really not going to see much more of that from Saul. So the battle's over and the chapter's over, but the battle's over and God's, Samuel says, all right, everybody to Gilgal. So this is how the chapter wraps up. This is what he says. He says, and listen to the repetition of this. You know, their, their, their celebration, Samuel says, let's all go to Gilgal. So verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal. And there, meaning Gilgal, renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal. And there, in Gilgal, they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So the author is trying to draw your attention to something very important. Because Gilgal doesn't mean anything to us. Unless you're like a super duper scholar and you know your Hebrew and you know your locations. Gilgal just sounds like another one of those weird cities. Gilgal to the Israelites was a big deal. Because Gilgal was the first place they settled when they went in the promised land. So you remember they wandered in the desert for 40 years and they came up to the Jordan River. You remember that? And the first country they, or the first city they defeated once they got into the promised land was Jericho. They marched around the wall seven times. But before they went to Jericho, they crossed the Jordan and they landed in Gilgal. And that's where, that was kind of their home base as they went to all these different parts of the promised land. And so what happened is the, the priests got the Ark of the Covenant and as they were walking to go across the Jordan River, the minute they stepped into the Jordan River with the Ark of the Covenant, the waters parted. Do you remember that? The waters just went, just like the Red Sea. And they walked across on dry ground. And so as they made it across, they were celebrating. We're in the promised land. We got a lot of work to do, but we're in the promised land. As they were celebrating, Joshua turns around and looks at all the people and says, I want one man from every tribe to go get a stone. We're not talking probably little stones. We're talking, I want every man to go get a stone. Pick your, pick your giant and go get a stone. So they all come in, they get their stones, and he goes over at Gilgal, and they make a monument to the Lord as a remembrance of his deliverance, a remembrance of the fact that they had wandered, they had left Egypt, the, the Red Sea had parted, the 10 plagues. I mean, it's just another renewal, if you will, probably, of the covenant. It was like, man, all this stuff happened at Gilgal. And Joshua 4.21 says, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So now Samuel, they, they, they win their first battle under the new king, and Samuel says, let's all go down to Gilgal. Those stones were probably still there, and they were supposed to be there forever, so I'm sure they were big stones. No doubt they were still there. So as the people of Israel are walking in to Gilgal, the stories would have started. Oh, this is where this happened. Look at those stones. Those stones are when our forefathers walked across the Jordan on dry ground. And they would have been explaining what Joshua did. Joshua told them to get all these stones and put them up as a monument. And the Lord delivered them. That's what happened. They would ultimately have known that the Lord was responsible for their deliverance. And even then, Saul might have been their figurehead. 
but it was a reminder that God was the one who did it. So at the end of the last chapter, when these guys say, how can this man save us? The answer is he can't. Saul can't save him. He might be tall. He might be physically good looking. He might have wealth. He might be mighty. But when we meet him, he's hiding in the baggage. And the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he ushers him into battle and takes care of Nahash, who most extra-biblical scholars think was already terrorizing the land. Spirit of the Lord comes on him, leads him into battle. And the lesson, I think, for us as we close is that deliverance and salvation does not come through a king, but through the Lord. Through our Savior, through our Creator. It comes through the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God is the one that delivered them. We're not saved from, from calamity in our lives through our own plans and our own ways and the way we want to do things. We're saved by the Lord. He is the deliverer. And, and we live in such a way, in such a society where it's really, really tempting to walk by state, sight, not walk by faith. Paul tells the church at Corinth to walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11 says, for without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And when, our, when we have enemies in our life and we have issues in our lives and we have obstacles in our life, our tendency is to look for a king. Our tendency is to look for a human solution. Our tendency is to look for a human way of fixing things. And God says, look, look to me. I may provide someone to help you. I may provide a job to get you out of this. I may provide a cure to get you out of it. But look to me. Because I am your deliverer. John 15, when Jesus is describing his disciples, this is called the, the, the Holy Spirit dialogue or discourse. John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. In John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you believe the power of the Spirit? Are you looking to the Lord to fight your battles? Or are you looking to the things around you? I think that's the question for us today. Are you looking to the Lord to fight your battles? Or are you looking to the things around you? And one of the most amazing characteristics of God, one of the most amazing traits of our Savior is his grace and mercy. And even in our lives, we continually run and run and run and run and we worship other idols and we look to other things. He's always waiting with open arms. In most cases, he comes right alongside of us and says, hey, that ain't gonna work out. Come with me. That king you want, mm, that's not gonna work out the way you want it. If you want it, I'll give it to you. But come to me and trust me. There's two stories as we close. There's two stories in the boat. There's tons of stories about what I think represents this really good, but two in particular. One is the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son has this idea that I want my inheritance now because everything about this world is pleasing to me. I want to go spend it on this. I want to go have fun. I want to go party. I want to do all these things. So he takes his inheritance and he leaves and he goes and he lives in another country and he just stays there. And he realizes eventually when his money's gone, man, that life, that way, that path, that broad path, 
was not what I thought it was going to be. I don't even know if my father will take me back. And he goes back home and guess who's waiting for him? His father. Open arms. You've been running from God. You've been running from your heavenly father. He's going to kill the fattened calf and says, let's go. The other, the other story that comes to mind is Hosea and Gomer in the Old Testament. You got this prophet who marries a prostitute. And I don't know if she was a prostitute when they married, but God says, this is who you need to marry. And time and time and time again, she leaves him and goes elsewhere. And every time it happens, he goes and he buys her back. He says, I know you think this is going to bring you pleasure. I know you think this is what you want, but it's not. I'm who you really want. He buys her back. It's this picture of God and Israel as you read through it more. There's this author, Jean Fleming, and she has a book called The Homesick Heart. And she describes both of those stories together. And this is what she says. Neither Gomer nor the prodigal son could see how good they had it at home. It was some craving within them that drove them wantingly on. This is the human condition. The high point of these stories is that just when I expect God to lob in hand grenades... He runs to his son, falls on his neck with kisses, and kills the fattened calf for a dinner celebration. What I expected him to say serves you right, or fry in hell. He buys Gomer out of slavery and makes her his bride again. He drapes the robe on her, puts it around her shoulders, takes the ring out, puts the ring on her finger, and says, let's go home. And turns her towards home. Be encouraged by the fact, as you leave here today, that God fights for you. He loves you, and he pursues you. Even when you want a king, even when you want an idol, even when you want other things, he loves you, and he pursues you. And he runs after you, just like the prodigal son, and he runs after you, just like Hosea and Gomer. I'm going to wrap up with Psalm 33. Read you some verses in Psalm 33, then we're done. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned, and he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for First Samuel. There's a lot of verses today, but thank you for this passage. Thank you for just this picture you've given us of Saul and a little bit of David and just what the people thought they wanted and the type of king they thought they wanted. Lord, that you were still willing to give it to him. You're still willing to work through him. But in the end, you are their deliverer and you are our deliverer, Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you for just who you are. We thank you for the way you care for us, the way you love us. Lord, I just pray that we would leave here today with a better understanding of the cross, a better understanding of who you are. In your name, amen.